We can all agree that sometimes life just hurts. Through this sermon series, we'll learn how to respond when we're wondering, why do I have to go through this? Where is God? Why does life hurt? All right. All right, all right. Now, how many of you need, you need to realize Jimmy's not met many counselors? So let's just put that in right context. How y'all doing this morning? Man, y'all look good. Y'all look good. Um, I am a pastor, also a counselor, married to this wonderful lady up front here for next week will be 47 years. She's been really difficult to live with, but uh, no, man, she's awesome. She's awesome. Um, Like I was saying, I'm a pastor, counselor thing. Uh, I used to say I was a pastor, did a lot of counseling probably a counselor who just happens to be pastoring. And uh, I know you're in a series on mental health, and, uh, you know, I could talk about mental health. I've learned a lot of cool stuff. I have a master's degree. I'm a professional counselor and all that cool stuff. But what I want to talk to you about today is my absolute favorite thing to talk about. And I have found, I got saved a month after we got married. Mary and Colleen scared me so badly. I had, I need, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, I scared me so badly. But I've been walking with God for 47 uninterrupted years. And the most amazing, helpful thing I've learned is what we're going to talk about today. How many of you like to keep things simple? Raise your hand if you like to keep them simple. Um, What if I could give you a spiritual discipline? I'm saying that word to scare you a little. What if I could give you a spiritual discipline that's so easy? Say easy. It's so easy. But it's so powerful, and uh, it's going to be fun. How many have at least one area of your life that God's still working on? If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to point at you. How many have another one? How many of you want to come up and share it? How many want to come up and share the person next to you's issue? Wouldn't that be fun to have a service where you came up and shared the issue of the person next to you? That'd be kind of cool. That'd be kind of fun. All right, number one thing I've learned. I, uh, I've been pastoring for 43 years now, 43 years, and um, I was uh, saved and came into the pastorship or pastorhood or whatever you call it, pastoring, uh, in a charismatic environment. Raise your hand if you kind of know what that is. And we were kind of wild. We were, like, if you ever imagine wild, you know, charismatic, we were kind of wild. And, uh, you know, I was taught that your job is to create this amazing moment where people experience the presence and power of God and the presence of God's thick and the gifts are in operation, all this stuff happens, you know? So that was kind of our goal and it wasn't really smart in the long run, but here's the deal. We had amazing services. We had God show up in amazing ways, but I had this horrible turning point shift that happened to me when I was in a grocery store and, you know, we just had amazing services that week And uh, I was in a grocery store and walking down one aisle, and on the next aisle over, I heard some lady just giving an employee of the grocery store up one side, down the other. Just ugly, mean, mad. I got to the end of the aisle, and guess what? It was one of my members. It was a lady who plays the tambourine, waves the flag, dances and crazy. I mean, she, she was as committed a member of the church as you could ever imagine. But somehow, 
what happened in this room didn't go with her out there. And something in me broke that day. And I've changed the way I measure my effectiveness as a pastor and a communicator. I want you to have a cool time while you're in the room. I want God to show up. I want God to do cool things. I want you to feel his presence. I want you to learn things that you can apply and bring change in your life. But here's the deal. I no longer measure my effectiveness by what happens in the room. I measure my effectiveness by what happens out there because you were in the room. Say yes if that makes sense. I just believe Jesus came to make us better people. How many of you think it's not unfair to expect Jesus coming into someone's life maybe should kind of make them a little bit nicer? You know? I get around some pretty big speakers and pastors and all that. And you know what one of my little requirements is? Off stage, out of the camera, out of the light, you know, back in the hallway. I just want you to be a decently nice human being. And it's sad that some of them aren't. I want to act like Jesus everywhere. Y'all with me? All right, when I was putting this message together, I had two titles, and I couldn't figure out which one I wanted to use. I had one that was the secret sauce for better relationships and less stress. How many of you like better relationships? Raise your hand if you want better relationships. Say better. better. Now, is better perfect? Better and perfect are the same. Do this for me one time. Just do this. Do this little, this little thing. I believe God can do at least that much while we're together today. Guess what? If he does, you've experienced better relationships. How about less stress? Is less zero? All right, say less. Guess what? Do it again. I believe with all my heart, if you apply what we're going to talk about today, if you apply what we're going to talk about today, and it's so simple. I didn't say easy, but simple. I promise you, you will experience better relationships and less stress. I promise you, you will. I'm going to read this weird paragraph. I don't know if it's up here or not, but uh, it's just a weird thing to just kind of get you thinking. This is what we're going to talk about today is the number one practical, life-changing, cycle-breaking, soul-satisfying, relationship-enriching, destiny-achieving, thirst-quenching, addiction-defeating, peace-producing, growth-multiplying, career-boosting, confidence-compounding thing I've learned and practiced since becoming a Christian 47 years ago. It's affected every area of my life. This one thing we're going to talk about today. My relationship with God. Oh my gosh, it's changed so much. So much. My relationship with myself. My relationship with my wonderful wife and kids. And now grandkids. How many think grandkids are pretty cool? Didn't you finally figure out why you had kids? Like I always wondered, why did I have these things? Now I got grandkids, I'm like, that's why I had them. This, this thing we're going to talk about has affected my emotional health and cycles. How many of you know emotions are tricky, man? We're not supposed to be a flat line, but we're not supposed to be like this. We're not supposed to whatever, and sometimes it's tricky. It's affected my spiritual growth and healing. I came into this whole thing we're going to talk about today uh, probably in my mid-40s, and I'm only 25, so that's pretty interesting, but... Uh, <laughs> probably in my mid-40s, and it was like getting saved all over again. 
and I mean deeply, deeply affected me. It's affected my career, my ministry, my calling. It's affected the risks that I'm willing to take. It's affected the confidence that I enter situations, moments, and challenges. This one thing we're going to talk about today, it's affected my income. Whoa, dude, why are you going to talk about that? Because here's the deal. I, I used to feel a certain way about myself, and I used to believe I just didn't deserve to be successful. And when this revelation grew in me, I, I started to believe God really meant it when he said that he wanted to bless us. And it's affected my experience of real freedom and lasting change. How many of you want to experience real freedom and lasting change? Just say yes. Come on, man. Um, I asked you earlier, do you have anything God still wants to work on? How many of you would have the courage to say, by the lifting of your hand, I'm probably not as free as I'd like to be in every area of my life? Let's, let's do something about that. This teaching is going to sneak up on some of that. All right, the other title. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll read it first and then I'll read this passage. The other title I thought about is this. This one thing I do every day. How many things? One. Say it again. One. Say one thing. One. one thing. How often? One. Every day. Say one thing. One. I'm getting you confused, aren't I? <laughs> Say one thing. How many days? Every day. One thing? Every day. This one thing I do every day. One thing. Listen, man, if you do this one thing every day, strong statement, you've pleased the heart of God. This one thing every day, you will have pleased the heart of God. All right, Philippians chapter 3 says this, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that. Say that. So that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. How many of you know God's got a that? He grabbed a hold of you to bring you into that. We're going to talk about what that is for every one of us. I want to lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, sisters, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, say one thing. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal and prize. You ever thought about it? What is the goal? What is the prize? The goal and the prize. What is it? And do we have to wait till heaven to get it? I don't know about you, but I figured this out. Religion, religion, doesn't mind talking about what Jesus did way back there, doesn't mind talking about what's going to happen over yonder. But what makes religion nervous is when you start talking about now faith is. How many of you know God wants to do some cool stuff now? There's a verse, and I think it's Psalm uh, 23, that he sets a table before me where? He sets a table in front of me 
in the presence of my enemy. Guess what, guys? That's not heaven. He sets a table. What does that mean? Just picture yourself eating this, you know, inch and a half thick steak, and it's so good, and the devil's over there starving watching you, and you're eating this big old steak and just smiling at him. How many of you want to get some revenge on the devil? How many, how many feel like he's used you to hurt a few people? I don't know about you, but I enjoy kind of feeling like I'm giving him a bad day. You know what I'm saying? So here's my question. What is the goal? What is the prize? Do we have to wait till heaven to get it? And then here's a thought for you. What if my number one goal, your number one goal, what if our number one goal in life align with our number one need in life and God's number one purpose for your life. Let me say it again. What if your number one goal, something you're going to do every day, align with your number one need and God's number one purpose? Wouldn't it be cool if you could do all three of these things at once with one act? And I believe you can. All right, to get us there, we're going to look at a verse in Matthew chapter 22. And it's an interesting chapter Matthew 22, there's some other things that go on. And then you got the Sadducees and Pharisees. How many of you ever take a section of scripture and sort of picture the room? You ever do that? Raise your hand if you ever do that. You just sort of picture what, 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 what that room looked like. So I want you to imagine Jesus is talking to a group of people. And the way I picture it is this. The Sadducees are over here. The Pharisees are over here. And you know what they're doing? They're strategizing they're not listening to Jesus for the truth that he's sharing. They're strategizing, how can we trip him up? How can we discredit him? How can we get him in trouble? So you, you got the Sadducees in one area, the Pharisees in another, and they're strategizing. They don't even agree with each other, by the way. But what's the rest of the room filled with? Hurting, hungry people. Sadducees, Pharisees, wherever I put them, and the rest of the room's full of hurting hungry people. Now, I believe the Pharisees and Sadducees are off in the corner of the room. The hurting, hungry people are getting as close to Jesus as they can get. Luke 15 says that sinners were drawn near to him to hear what he had to say. Now, here's an interesting thought. What was Jesus, what was he up to? You know what I think? I think he was trying to communicate with body language, eye contact, and the content of his words. I'm not with them, and I'm not with them. I'm with you. And I believe he'd look at people in ways that would just say to the whole room, I'm not with them, I'm with you. So what happened is, Sadducees take a shot at him, he shuts them down. Pharisees take a shot at him, he shuts them down. They each took about two shots at him in this one chapter. Well, then we get to this point. Remember what the room feels like. And they say this, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? In a sense, what they were saying is we want you to rank the importance of life issues to God. What is the most important thing to God? Now think about that. What's the most important thing to God? In one word, what did Jesus say? Say it. Love, say it together, love. Jesus, what's the, you got these people mad, these people mad, these people hungry for truth. I just want to feel better. I just want to 
just not feel like a loser all the time. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love. You know that had to blow their minds. Of all the things, holiness, obedience, and he said, love. And then think about this. He said, love God, which by the way, that's who he was. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you know in that context, that was a really cool answer? Now, here's just to stretch it a little bit further. What if he pulled somebody up? They asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And what if he pulled somebody up? Maybe someone who's a famous community-wide sinner. I'm sorry, I didn't say it right. Sinner. (laughs) What if he pulls up this person, maybe a tax collector, some horrible sinner, and he pulls them up, puts his arm around their shoulder before he answers? What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your, and this is the worst sinner in the community. Love your neighbor as yourself. Can you imagine how that would have rippled through the room? Just rippled through the room. I love stuff like that. I love looking at Jesus through different eyes. All right, what do I think is God's number one purpose? Remember I said your number one goal, number one need aligns with God's number one purpose. I believe God's number one purpose is what? Love, love, period, love. What is your number one need? Love. What should be our number one goal in life? Love. Now, here's the problem. A few years ago, a church studied uh, church growth and making disciples. They were frustrated because their strategies for making disciples just didn't seem to be working. They weren't putting out into the world Christians that were changing the world. And they were like, what in the world are we doing wrong? So they studied, they, did, uh, they, they, they surveyed every socioeconomic class you could imagine, denominations. I don't know if they went around the world, but I know they went around the country. And they ended up writing a book about their findings. And they called it Reveal. I don't know if you've ever read that, the Reveal study. And I don't typically read that kind of stuff anymore because I'm not pastoring a church. But uh, I felt like the Holy Spirit prompted me to read it. And you know when the Holy Spirit prompts you, you're like, oh, okay, there's probably something in here for me. So uh, I'm reading the thing, and it was on page either 74 or 76. I don't remember which, but it was one of those two. Why do I remember that? Because as soon as I read this, I knew that's why the Holy Spirit wanted me to read it. And guess what? It was this passage, Matthew 22. And here was their conclusion. After all their study, all the money they spent, here's what they said. We've been making discipleship too complicated. We need to build people that do two things. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. You ever heard that preached before? Love God, love others. Now, here's why I was so excited. They're wrong. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, I believe, is one commandment you do automatically. You love others the way you love yourself. 
How many of you know your next thought ought to be, Houston, we have a problem. Do y'all realize the hardest person you're ever going to have to learn to love is the one sitting in your chair? I'm going to say that again. The hardest person you're ever going to have to learn to love is the one sitting in your chair. How'd you like somebody to come to you and say, hey, I want to pay for a around-the-world cruise, all-inclusive. I'll cover all your expenses for everything you do. I, I, it's going to be amazing. You can do, you can be in the top room. You're going to eat the top. It's going to be all paid for. There's only one catch. You got to share your room with a person you don't like to be around. Oh, by this way, you're in a room by yourself. You with me? How many of you realize you're the only person you can't get away from? You figured that out yet? What would it take for you to be okay with you? What would it take for you to look in the mirror and say, you know what, dude? You're all right. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's things about myself I don't like. I wish God would have put a little bit more of that in and taken a little bit of this out. You know what I'm saying? But how many of you believe God made you? Raise your hand if you believe God made you, scripturally, right? Ephesians 2.10 says we're the workmanship of God. God made us in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time. So let me ask you one more time. How many of you believe you are God's handiwork? He made you. Raise your hand one more time. So you're the workmanship of God, yes or no? How many of you have spent lots of time criticizing his work? I don't like my nose. I don't like my butt. I don't like whatever. Are you with me? You realize you only get one shot at this? How many of us in this room are messed up a little bit? Who's jacked up a lot? Point at him. Here's the deal. How many of you think this is good theology? I'm a jerk, you're a jerk, but it's okay. How many of you think that's good theology? I hope you do, because it's the truth. What else has got to happen? Right? Here's an interesting verse. John 17, 23. I in them, you and me, this is Jesus. I in them, you and me, to the Father, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you've loved me. Now, you, gotta, you, just, you just got to put your brain over in the corner and let this verse come through without you judging it and filtering it. Jesus said that you love them just like you love me. Jesus said to the Father, you love each one of them just as much as you love me. Now, every one of you would probably say, oh, yeah, I believe that. But if I followed you around, do you live like that's true? I was working with a friend of mine one time, and um, great guy, kind of successful in the ministry, and he, we were talking about all that stuff. And then he said this to me, he said, why aren't I happy? Why don't I enjoy what God's done for me? 
And I said, well, let's talk. And we started talking. And you know what we discovered? His father was afraid that he'd be prideful and arrogant. So his father just didn't like giving compliments. He'd do something in sports and do really well. And his father would say, well, you know, you could have done this. His father just could not tell him he was good and did a great job because he was so afraid he'd grow up proud and arrogant. Well, guess what? He carried that with him into his relationship with God. And he never heard God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, let me ask you a question. He never heard God say that. Does that mean God wasn't saying it? I'm going to ask you that again. He never heard God say that. Did that mean God wasn't saying it? Why did God create you? How many of you want to fulfill God's purpose? How many of you, when we throw dirt on you, you want us to be able to say, this man, this woman, did what God created him or her to do? Raise your hand. You want, you want that? Okay. Then how many of you think you need to answer the question, why did he create me? Does that make sense? So why? And normally, I'm going to kind of cut through the chase of this. Normally, people say to serve him, worship him, bring others to him, blah, blah, blah. And my response is this. Okay, if he wants you to worship him, that's why he created you, then he's an egotistical rock star that wants people shouting his name. If he wants you to, he created you so you could serve him. So you had kids to mow the grass and do the dishes? Are you with me? Why the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and nothing else, what compelled him to do this? What motivated him to do this? There's only one answer that makes sense to me. What's the greatest commandment? The only thing that makes sense to me is God is love and he needed kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great. He needed somewhere to share it. Now, a lot of times what happens is I get somebody to that point and they say, oh, so God created me to love him. No. That's like Warren Buffett asking you to lunch and expecting you to pay. God doesn't need your love. You know what he needs from you? Your willingness to allow him to love you. God created you. Listen, now this is so simple. It's so obvious. It's so whatever. God's number one reason for creating you is so that he could love you. Yeah, but I'm such a mess. Got a question for you. Did Jesus do enough or not? Did Jesus do enough or not? How many of your sins did he die for? Past, present, or future? Intentional or unintentional? How many of you sinned in the last week? How many of you sinned in the last day? Colleen, raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you feel like you have a few more in you? 
How many of you already have some planned? <laughs> Believe it or not, occasionally I get hands raised. Here's the deal. How many of your sins did he die for? How many is he holding over your head? Do you live like that? How many of you appreciate what Jesus did for you? Do you? How many of you saw the passion of the Christ? Wasn't it cool? What a gift. Cool. Everybody in the world went to see the movie. Every church in America, you know, you go to see the movie and then you had to preach on it, right? So I was like, God, what do you want me to, how do you, what do you, how do you want me to, you know, handle it? And I felt like this is the way it came out. I said, here's the deal, guys. How many of you thought the movie was amazing, powerful, and you're so appreciative of what Jesus did? Yes. I said, well, let me ask you a favor. When you want to show God how grateful you are for what Jesus did, don't come to the altar crying, oh, Jesus, you had to suffer so much. If you want to show Jesus how much you appreciate what he did for you, don't come to the altar crying. Get what he paid for. If you want to appreciate what he did, get what he paid for. You know what he paid for? He paid for you to have the legal right to walk into the presence of God as if you've never sinned. Jesus died so that you could run into the presence of God, jump up in the lap of your father, and him hold you. When's the last time you heard God whisper your name? Ooh, chipper. I love you, man. Thank you, God. God, we going to have a good day? Oh, Chipper, I got a good day planned. We're going to have a nice day together. Imagine God hovering over your bed while you're sleeping. A little bit creepy, I know. <laughs> but he's waiting for you to wake up because he loves hanging out with you. And here's the first thing you do. God, I'm so sorry I messed up yesterday. Yeah, I know, Chipper, I was there. I saw it. I kind of think you asked me to forgive you for that. Yeah, I know, God, but I'm such a loser. He said, you know, if you hadn't brought it up, I never would have thought about it again. If you hadn't brought it up, I never would have thought about it again. Is that good theology? What's God's number one purpose for you? To love you. What's your number one job? Learning to let him love you. 1 John 4.19 says this, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Who does which first? He does. He does. I like to say it this way, my number one goal in life is to receive and rest, R and R, receive and rest in the Father's love. R&R, learning to receive from us. Romans 5, 17, part B, says this. Those who receive, say receive. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. It doesn't say those who can quote scripture, those who can write an essay, those who can preach a sermon. It says those who receive gift of grace and righteousness. What about love? <clears throat> Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Almost anybody on the planet would say Jesus loves them. God loves them. Lost people on the street. Do you believe God loves you? Yeah, God loves me. 
But here's the deal. Do you wake up feeling, ooh, God's arms wrapped around you? That's why he created you, to love you, to get his hands on you. He, he so wants to hang out with you. All right. How do you reset your soul? Three more thoughts and we're done. How do I reset my soul every day by focusing on one thing? How do I reset my soul every day by focusing on one thing? Now, I'm going to give you three steps, but they're all focusing on one thing. In John 7, the last day of the, uh, a great feast, Jesus stood up and cried, saying, if anyone's thirsty, Dallas Willard says, thirst is the pain or discomfort of unmet need. The pain or discomfort of unmet need. If anyone's thirsty and their soul craves what they don't have, let him come to me and drink. How many, if I gave you a glass of water, could probably figure out how to drink it? Why, why do I say that? Because he gave such a simple metaphor. Come to me. He didn't say come to me and stand on one leg for an hour and a half. He didn't come and say, do these 13 things and then those 12. He came and said, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. And then in John 4, you got the woman by the well, right? And he says to the woman by the well, anyone who drinks this water will become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give them will never thirst again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring from within them. How would you like to take everything you need everywhere you go? I walk into every room. My goal is to walk into any room, anywhere, anytime, for any purpose, not needing anything from that room. Like, here's the deal. I don't need you to like me. I don't need you to say nice things about me. I want you to like me, and I want you to say nice things about me. But I don't need you to. Why? I spent time with God. And you know what? God likes me. Can I give you a little bit of bad news? I'm his favorite. <laughs> so get in line. All right, three steps. Three steps. If you're going to reset your soul every day, you got to do one thing, and this is just three thoughts on how to do that. Number one, look to God first and most. Say first and most. Look to God first and most. Say first and most. Look to God first and most for everything you need. Everything. Everything. Practice looking to God first. You feel sad, look to God. You feel mad, look to God. You feel whatever, look to God first and most. Number two. Identify and deal with your idols. What does that mean? An idol is any person or thing you look to, run to, or rely on to meet needs only God can meet. When I was learning this stuff, I fired my wife. I said, baby, you're fired. You are no longer responsible for making me feel loved. I want you to love me. I love it when you love me. But if you don't love me, well on any given day, which she does. But if you didn't, I still feel loved. Why? I've learned the secret to a great marriage, and it's to have an affair. 
and I go over here and I have an affair with God and God fills my heart with love and I go over here and my wife goes over here and she has an affair with God and he fills her heart with love guess what we come back toward each other already full of what we need instead of trying to take from each other what we don't have does that make sense most most marriages most marriages are two ticks and no dog they're two people trying to suck from one another what neither one of them has so learn to look to God first and most for everything you need number two identify and deal with your idols number three practice say practice practice receiving and resting practice receiving and resting in the father's love when today tomorrow morning what's it look like you get up get off to yourself got your coffee and Bible and journal whatever you do but what if for the first few minutes you put that aside and you just hold up empty hands and your mentality your heart is this God I my first thing is not to get something done I just want to receive I want to let you do what you created me for I want to learn to let you love me now there's a bunch of you in the room if you were honest you'd say I'm not sure I know how to do that well here's the deal how do you learn anything are you good at it the first time what if you just said, you know, I'm going to try what that crazy guy said. And I'm going to take the next week, month, year, and I'm going to practice just sitting quietly in God's presence, acknowledging his love for me and asking him to fill me with his love for me first, not through me for others. Oh, well, that's selfish. Darling, you just don't get it. You get your heart full of love and you learn to love the hardest person you ever have to learn to love. Everybody else is easy. Everybody else is easy. Thank you, Lord. Father, this whole journey starts with one simple act and that's accepting Jesus as our Savior, and then learning to allow him to be our Lord. Let's all pray this simple prayer together. Heavenly Father, say it with me. Heavenly Father, I believe I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. Jesus died in my place to forgive me of all sin. Jesus, thank you for coming into my heart and leading me from this moment forward. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, Father, I pray for my friends in this room, my brothers and sisters. And, sir, I pray that you would, even right now, allow your love to descend in this room. Allow your love to find cracks to get through. Allow each of us to have moments where for, even if it's just for a moment at first, we have this fleeting moment where we feel your love. And maybe we lose it, but we come back and drink some more. And eventually, 
we spend more time in a conscious awareness of your love for us than we ever have before. Show the men and women, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, children, aunts, uncles, grandparents, employers, employees. Show the people in this room how much you love them. Please, sir. Please, sir. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.